Father, we pray now that you would help us as we look at these words about Jesus, that you would help us to see what they mean. These extraordinary things that Jesus said and did, would they come alive for us today? So that as we seek to live for you today in your world, we will be encouraged and we will be given confidence in who Jesus is and what he's done. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So he was born in an obscure village, the son of a peasant woman. Till the age of 30, he worked his father's trade. For three years, he was effectively homeless, relying on the kindness of others for board and lodging, moving from place to place. He never went to college or university. He never wrote a book. He never ran for office or won an election. He never got married, had a family or owned a house. He never went to any big cities or, or, or even went further than 200 miles from his birthplace. He never did any of the things that usually accompany greatness. And yet today, millions, if not billions, of people call themselves Christians, followers of this man, Jesus Christ. What was it about this Jesus that could cause him to have such an effect, not just on his own nation, but on the entire history of the world? Arguably the greatest effect of any man who's ever lived. That's one of the things that set Matthew, the gospel writer, writing this gospel. And these chapters that we're looking at in Matthew's gospel for much of these term are focused on one thing about Jesus that set him apart from every other teacher, every other philosopher, every other world leader that the world has ever seen. What was that one thing that set him apart? It was his unmatchable authority. About a year ago, we studied the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 to 7 in Matthew. And we saw that Jesus stood apart from all the other rabbis and religious teachers before and since. Because when he taught, he didn't say, do this because God says you should. He said, you've heard it said in the scriptures or in religious tradition, such and such. But I say to you, do this or whatever it was. So he spoke, in other words, on his own authority. I can't do that. You can't do that. But he did. And then even more than that, if that's possible, he claimed to determine who was in and who was out of God's kingdom. What an arrogant thing to do, unless you are the son of God himself on earth as a man, speaking with God's authority as his king. That is what the, crowd, the crowds remark on at, at the end of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, the end of chapter 7, just a few verses before what we heard read on page 972. He's not like the teachers of the law. He's completely different. He speaks as one who has authority. But that's a massive claim. And up to a point, you could say, well, it's just words. And so now, as we, as we began to see last week with the healing of the leper, Jesus shows that his authority goes beyond mere words. It is backed up and it's demonstrated in action. So what happens then when Jesus demonstrates his authority? These verses, and in fact all of Matthew's, Matthew chapter 8 to 10, that we'll be looking at this term and over the summer, they spell that out. And if we just flick forwards for a moment, we can see where Matthew is heading. Matthew's gospel isn't just a random collection of stories. It's a very carefully compiled account with a clear purpose. 
Jesus demonstrates his unmatchable, unmistakable authority in chapters 8 and 9 over disease, over the natural world, over demon possession, over death itself. And at the beginning of chapter 10, if you look at that on the next page, he sends out his disciples into the harvest field to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And what does he give them? Do you notice chapter 10, verse 1, what does he give them? He gives them authority. So this account of Jesus' authority is intended to encourage his followers, including us if we're following him today, encouraging us that we can trust that Jesus really is God's promised king and that we can in turn speak confidently and with authority in bringing that news to others. If you're a Christian, do you feel at times on the back foot unsure of whether to speak up, what to say, whether the message about Jesus really stands up under the scrutiny of cynical, sneering colleagues and friends and family members at home, at work, at school. The Bishop of Truro delivered a report this week to the Foreign Secretary underlining the extent of persecution of Christians worldwide. Christians are the most persecuted faith. For a Christian in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday, following Jesus cost them a lot more than snide remarks or sidelining. It's the same for many Christians worldwide. And we may not be there yet ourselves in London, but if we're going to be known for following Jesus among our friends and our colleagues and the world around us, well, we need to be confident that the commit, this commitment to Jesus really stands up to scrutiny, that we're not believing a lie, a deception, an error, that we're not being utterly foolish for carrying on then when it becomes hard to believe in Jesus and follow him, when it becomes costly. And more than that, We need to be confident that this message about Jesus is the most important message that we can ever hear and that our friends around us and the world around us can ever hear. This King Jesus, the one with all authority that we're going to see demonstrated and proven here, this is the one person who can change the lives uh, for us ourselves and the lives of those around us too. So that's what these chapters are designed to address for us and are designed to do for us. And in these verses that we've heard read, we see what happens when one person in particular responds to the authority of Jesus. Last week it was a leper, Jewish, but an outsider because of his infectious skin condition that made him physically and ceremonially unclean. Now this guy here, this centurion, is an outsider in an even more clear sense. He's a Gentile. He's a symbol of the oppression of God's people by the Roman Empire. An enemy, really. And a centurion himself, he's a powerful figure. He's in charge of a hundred men, as the title implies. And by the end of the story, an extraordinary healing has taken place. This crippled servant, miraculously restored, as surprising to them then as it it is to us now. But do you notice in this account, the healing is almost an afterthought. It's not actually what Matthew focuses on in these verses. 
That's because Jesus makes it clear that the miracles themselves aren't actually why he has come. So again, flick forward to chapter 11, a couple of pages. We get to the, <clears throat> the beginning, uh, the, the, Matthew sort of begins new sections in his, in his gospel with, with phrases like this, beginning of chapter 11, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, so a new section, but when, verse 2, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who wants to come, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, what does he say? It's the evidence, go back and report to John what you hear and see, what is that? The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And all of those things, highlighting all those things, is actually highlighting what the Old Testament pointed forwards to and said was going to happen. That when God's kingdom come, this kind of thing would take place. These miracles then are signs of the kingdom. Signs that the king has come. People sometimes puzzle over why miracles seemed a lot more common around Jesus. You know, is that a bit suspicious? Well, no, it isn't, because the miracles signposted his identity. The key thing was to establish, who is this guy? When you arrive at Hampstead, on the tube, deep underground, deepest tube station in London, you see the sign that says, Hampstead. You know you've arrived. But what do you do then? You don't go, oh, great, I've arrived. And you spend the rest of the day on the platform standing by the sign. You go to where the sign is pointing. And it's the same with the miracles. Do you see that? That's why in these verses, Matthew puts the focus on actually on something else as Jesus demonstrates his authority because he wants to get, get beyond what the miracle is pointing to to what it is. To, to the reality, what he's actually saying about Jesus. He wants to show, to show what Jesus' authority brings about. And so we can see, if you follow on uh, the, the back of the notice sheets, there's humility, there's faith, and there's talk of a new community as this centurion responds to Jesus' authority. So let's see that. First of all, humility. So here he is, <clears throat> this centurion, verse 5, he's doing something that doesn't often come easily to, to men especially who think that they're powerful, he's asking for help. And then verse 6, if you look at that. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralysed and in terrible suffering. It's remarkable when you think about it, a senior-ranking soldier should show concern for a servant, even more so when you look at verse 9, which we'll look at properly in a while, but he is somebody who's used to sending other people to get jobs done. And yet here he is in person. I will go and heal him, says Jesus. And then the centurion's response is surprising. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. What a strange thing to say. What has this centurion understood about Jesus? And what has he understood about himself? Perhaps from the reputation that Jesus has acquired through his healing and his preaching, the things that people are saying about him, he's realised, this is not somebody I deserve to have in my house. We saw this in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who belong in the kingdom of God and those who realise they don't deserve to be there. Now, one aspect of that would be a sense of moral 
imperfection. If this Jesus really has the kind of authority he is demonstrating over the world, he will know what kind of person I am. The centurion realises. He will know the kinds of things that have gone on in my house behind closed doors. We all get pretty uh, adept at disguising the reality of our hearts, both from one another and even from ourselves. Maybe you've heard before a story about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. One day he was having a day off from writing Sherlock Holmes stories, so he sent a telegram to 12 friends in prominent positions in government and society in London at the time, and the telegram said simply, flee at once, all is revealed. And within 24 hours, six of those people had left the country. So if we're willing to face up to that reality in our own lives, that actually there is lots that has gone on inside our own hearts and in our own lives that is not honouring to God. That means we're not deserving. If we're willing to face up to that, we'll be ready to hear what it means for Jesus to be our Saviour King. But there's a further problem for the centurion as well, because his unworthiness is also due to the fact that he is a Gentile. And it's hard to kind of get our heads around this today, but consider this. In all of the Gospels, in in all of the things we know about Jesus and all the things he said and did, he, he went into many people's houses, but nowhere is it ever recorded that Jesus entered the house of a Gentile. And actually that was entirely normal for a Jewish person because of the customs around hospitality. You you don't just drop into someone's house, you'd be expected to eat if you arrived in someone's house, and, well, Jews can't eat with Gentiles. It's in the Old Testament law. And the centurion would have been well aware of that as well. You see, he's a double outsider. He's a sinner, and he's outside the people of God. And yet, whether consciously or not, he's come to this king of God's people, expecting that even he, a Gentile, might possibly benefit from him too. We saw in Genesis with Abraham that this was always the plan for God's people to be a blessing to the nations. Do we realise God's family is a place we don't naturally belong? For many people, this is the step that's missing, that keeps them on the outside of Christian things, looking in, that sense that actually we're not that bad really, God is lucky to have us. We'll see a bit later what the implications of that way of thinking are. But if you ever feel as a Christian that you have lost the wow factor in your faith, it could well be that you have forgotten this first step that the centurion is clear about. I do not deserve this. I am not worthy. The person who realises how unworthy they are will, will never cease to wonder at God's grace to him, to them, and to keep trusting him. And that's what comes next with the centurion. So, secondly then, faith. And the the centurion gives us a picture of faith, of what faith looks like. And this is what astonishes Jesus. If you look at verse 10, goodness me, he says, I've I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Well, what does faith mean for the centurion? It means recognising that Jesus has all authority. Can you see that in verse 9? 
He recognises authority when he sees it because he knows a thing or two about authority. He knows what it is to command something and see it happen. You know, just like in our house at bath time. Maybe not. But in the Roman army, orders were orders. And if a soldier disobeyed, he would no doubt be put to death. No questions asked. He knows about authority. And he can see that Jesus has that kind of authority. The one who spoke the universe into existence with a word. Let there be light. He's not going to have a problem commanding a healing from a distance with a word. Jesus' healings usually involve him touching a person, but it's almost as if he does this to show the power is not in the touch itself, but in the one who simply needs to speak and it will happen. And how does Jesus respond? I tell you, I've not found such great faith, even in Israel. If you want to know what faith looks like, it looks like the centurion getting that Jesus is the boss. And as he gets who Jesus is, how could he do anything other than throw himself on his mercy? He realises, Jesus, this is the guy who can truly get things done. Of course I'm going to trust him. Do people ever say to you, I wish I had your faith? Or have you found yourself saying that to others? As if faith is something you either have or you don't have. You know, like being tall for example. It must be lovely to be tall, people say, about once a day to me. But <laughs> you're either tall or you're not. And people see faith like that. You know, it's not something you're in control of, I think. But can you see from all this, faith is all about its object. When you get who Jesus is and the kind of power and authority he has, Faith or trust just follows automatically. How can it not? It's like looking at an awesome sunset. So when you look at an amazing sunset out of the window, you, know, you, you don't choose whether or not to be awestruck. You just are awestruck because you've seen the sunset. It's awe-inspiring. How can you respond differently? And suppose you're looking out of the window at that sunset at home and you call to someone else in your house and you say, look, this is amazing, I can't get over how beautiful this sunset is. And they respond from the next room, I wish I had what you have. It's lovely that you're experiencing those feelings at the moment, but you know, those feelings about sunsets, well, you've either got them or you haven't. And you say, well, don't be ridiculous, just come and look at the sunset. It's the sunset that's making me awestruck. Not sort of some feeling inside that I'm drumming up from within me. See, that is how faith works, do you see? It's not about me, it's not about my ability to drum up spiritual insight, it's about Jesus. Seeing who Jesus is and responding in the only natural way possible when you really grasp that he is the Lord of the universe with power and authority over all human life. The kind of power that says when he says and wants something done, it gets done. He just speaks and it happens. Oh, I'm not worthy. Lord, just say the word. So they say, you know, I wish I had your faith. They say, I could never have faith like you. Well, just come and look at the evidence. 
Come and see Jesus. You're going to need to open the Bible to do that. You know, just pray, Lord, if there's anything in this, anything at all, show me Jesus. Show me that this is a guy I can't just take or leave as I feel like. This is someone I cannot avoid. When you see who Jesus is, you can't do anything but put your faith in him. But then there's a surprising sting, because Jesus goes on to talk about, not just about the individual centurion, but the community of all those who belong to God's family. So what happens when Jesus' authority is acknowledged? A new community is formed. So thirdly, a new community. Many will come from the east and the west. And in in Matthew's Gospel, that's the nations, you know, like the Magi, remember, in chapter 2 that we read often at Christmas, the Magi from the east who come right at the beginning of Jesus' life, showing that he is a saviour not just for the Jewish nation, but for all nations, just as we heard in, in the reading from Isaiah. Many will come from east and west and take their places at the feast. And it's kind of picture language, isn't it? But it's describing the new heavens and the new earth. When Jesus returns, when God's kingdom is seen in all its glory, the key question is, who will be there? Well, praise the Lord, there will be ethnic Jews, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for a start. And there will be Gentiles, but there's a shock. Verse 12, the subjects of the kingdom, in other words, kind of the people you would expect to find, will be thrown outside. So what Jesus is saying is that the determining factor in the end is not ethnicity or ancestry or family background, the determining factor, shockingly, is him. The determining factor is whether those who want to be at that feast, whether they are Jew or Gentile, whether they have acknowledged Jesus as the one with all authority. Well, how could Abraham, Isaac and Jacob do that before Jesus was born? Well, they did it by faith in the promises God had made, as we've been seeing in our series in Genesis. But now that Jesus has come, the claim is there is ample evidence that he is God's king. So trust him. Now, if these chapters are here to to give us confidence in Jesus' authority as we bring that message to others, isn't this where we can so easily struggle and lack confidence? Speaking about these things, about, about who will be there, that kind of thing. It, it comes as a, as a surprise to many to find that the, the person who talks about hell and God's judgment the most in the Bible, who's, who's the person who talks about that the most? Is it the Apostle Paul? People sort of assume for some reason it might be him. No, it's not. It's Jesus. It's on his lips that you find this talk. And can you see he's saying this because he loves those that he's speaking to. He's saying, don't miss what's right in front of you. This is God's promised king, the one who God's people have waited for so long. He's here and he's me. I have the authority to give you life. But you see, so many see Jesus as a kind of optional extra to an otherwise so-called spiritual Life. Well, they can't understand why it matters so much to trust Jesus. Isn't, it, isn't that a bit arbitrary? There are plenty of good people who don't believe in Jesus. Why make that the one thing that matters? 
But we'll see even more clearly as we go through these chapters, this is not a kingdom for the good. This is not a kingdom for the spiritual. It's not a kingdom for the religious. It's not a kingdom for those who've got their lives together. It's a kingdom for those who realise Jesus is God's king and all authority has been given to him. So put your faith in him. The shock in Jesus' lifetime was that it was the people you would expect to accept his message who he was warning about missing out. Now that applied, that warning then applied particularly to the Jewish nation of the time, but in many ways it applies to us today in a different way, doesn't it? If we think that just sort of being part of church things and sort of sitting on the edge is sufficient, no, what matters is whether we ourselves have personally put our trust in Jesus and seen that he is the one with all authority and committed ourselves personally in our own hearts to God. Because he's warning here, reject the evidence that he's laid out for you about who he is and the future is unimaginably bleak. The darkness points to isolation. The gnashing of teeth to, to regret of not responding while there was still time. We need to hear this warning if we've yet to trust Jesus for ourselves. Don't be fooled by the so-called open-minded agnostic who says something like, you know, well, I'm not a believer, but you know, I'm happy to entertain the possibility of being pleasantly surprised when I die. Well, maybe it'll turn out there is a God. You know the kind of thing? Well, actually, no, that will be too late. And we need to have confidence if we're trusting him. But what our friends need to hear most from us is that Jesus is the one that they need to consider. It's not about church. It's not about living a good life. It's about Jesus. So, you know, on Tuesday morning it will be, not, not Monday morning, we usually talk about that, don't we? On Tuesday morning, what did you do at the weekend? Oh, well, I, you know, I, I went to church. That's the religious answer. It's okay as far as it goes. And, we, you know, we can't be weirdly forced about these things, but could the answer to that question ever have something to do with Jesus? I was really struck by something I heard about Jesus at the weekend. Or, or, or how about this? You've been going through a hard time. And your friend asks you how you coped. And you could just say, well, something to the effect of, I just kept calm and carried on. Or would this be closer to the truth? Well, you know, actually the pain at times has been unbearable. But I don't think I could have got through this year without Jesus. The conversation needs to turn to him, doesn't it? And we can have confidence when we do that that he has all authority. And in fact, that when we speak about him, we're speaking as his representatives. And he can speak through us with the authority that he has. That all that anyone needs to do is to come to him in faith, like the centurion, and they too can become part of this new community that is coming and that has already come in the church that centres on him. So then Jesus said to the centurion, go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his centurion and his servant was healed at that very hour. 
All authority has been given to Jesus. Next to him, the greatest of the great, of world leaders and philosophers and poets and the rest of them. They they don't even get a look in, do they? Next to Jesus. And now he wants us to go with the same authority that comes from him to bring the news to the world that his kingdom has come. That if we will humble ourselves before him, simply put our faith in him, like the centurion, we too can be part of that kingdom and invite others to do the same. Let's pray now. Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Father, if if we're honest, we know that to be true of ourselves. But we praise you that Jesus is the one with all authority. And we praise you that in him, when we come to him and put our faith in him, we can be part of this new community marked but by faith in Jesus. Thank you that we can know with confidence the joy of sins forgiven. A fresh start with Jesus. Thank you that he offers that to anybody. Whoever we are, whatever our background, may we come to Jesus today, whether for the first time or whether afresh to receive the grace he offers in the gospel and a place in that new community the foretaste of your kingdom we pray in Jesus name Amen